0: Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net. That's where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. If you like more recent movies, I also do a podcast covering those. A lot of movies that have come out over the last five years. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. And you can listen to any of those reviews by clicking the link to that podcast at my website, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the second part of a three-part series looking at films in which nerds get revenge in college. Last week I looked at Real Genius from 1985, and this week I'm going to go to the most obvious of the films in this trilogy, Revenge of the Nerds from 1984. Revenge of the Nerds is an R-rated film. It does have a bit of nudity. It does have a lot of sexual humor, language, drug use. It's an hour and a half in length. Anthony Edwards and Robert Carradine are the main stars. A big ensemble cast of supporting actors, so bear with me. Ted McGinley, John Goodman, Curtis Armstrong, Larry B. Scott, Julia Montgomery, Michelle Mayrink, who also appeared in Real Genius, Donald Gibb, Brian Tochi, Bernie Casey, Timothy Busfield, David Wall, Andrew Cassess, Matt Salinger, and James Cromwell. Jeff Canoe is the director. The screenplay is credited to Steve Zacharias and Jeff Buhai. Now, before I get into the, I guess, the origin of Revenge of the Nerds, it's a lot of people who claim that they came up with a lot of different ideas, so this is probably the best I could do based on the information that I have on hand. From what I could tell, the inspiration for Revenge of the Nerds came when there were two aspiring screenwriters. One was story editor Tim Metcalf, and another was a film executive and friend of his named Miguel Tejada Flores. Tejada Flores, he had a a nerdy father. He was a Bolivian immigrant who came to the United States and went to Caltech in Pasadena, and he would frequently discuss with his son uh, a lot of the most notorious pranks that they pulled when they were students there. In that instant... He had the idea for a movie, very similar to how Real Genius did, which was also based on the pranks that they pulled at Caltech. But in his story idea, there were going to be computer kids in college who are using their brains to try to play pranks on the jocks who have bullied them all their lives. Now, the term nerd was not really as common in those days. It was more of a derogatory term in those days than it is today. You definitely didn't want to be called a nerd back in the early 1980s. It was not a very well-known word. In fact, Metcalfe in his screenplay misspelled it as N-U-R-D. And one day, these two friends and writers were splashing around in the swimming pool of MGM's new senior executive of production named Peter Bart. Peter Bart also happened to be the president of Lorimar Pictures, and that's where Tejada Flores was an executive. And Bart asked them if they had any ideas for movies. And they mentioned that they had this film in which there were nerds who were playing pranks on the bullies idea. And Bart liked this idea, too. He told them to present him with a script treatment and what Bart received it. He felt it was a bit underdeveloped, so he decided to revise it himself, and he included the one person he considered to be an expert on computer kids and school clicks and what's going on today with the kids, his 16-year-old daughter named Dillis. Dillis provided a lot of ideas for this script, but she did object to the word nerd being used in the script because she considered it a very derogatory term for computer kids in those days, but she couldn't come up with a better word to use, so it kind of stuck, at least for then. As a studio executive, though, Peter Bart, he really couldn't produce the film himself, so he turned the project over to Ted Field. Ted Field was a rich heir. He had recently left the world of car racing. He was looking to get into more of the entertainment side of the business, and he wanted a youth-oriented movie to kickstart his new media company called Interscope Communications. And Field came up with the title Revenge of the Nerds after he saw this cover on the July 1982 issue of California Magazine. And on the cover... There was a nerd at a computer he was being fawned over by two beautiful women. It was for an article written by Paul Chiatti about how computer geeks, like the founders of Apple, were now gaining respect. They were making millions of dollars. This was just when people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were on the cusp of becoming business leaders and household names, and the geeks were beginning to inherit the earth that we know today. Joe Wazan, he was the new head of production at 20th Century Fox. He bought this Revenge of the Nerds idea, and MGM was going to finance it for, at that time, $6 million. In the end, it would cost a little bit more than that, about $8 million. Peter Bart took a role as an executive producer on the film, which he claims paid for Dillis's way through Stanford University. For a director, Wazan sought out a friend of his who had recently left the business to teach at his alma mater of Columbia University, Jeff Canoe. Wazan sent Canoe three scripts for 20th Century Fox comedies that were needing directors. There was a cheerleading camp comedy called Gimme an F. There was the provocative Bachelor Party, of course, that came to star Tom Hanks. And Revenge of the Nerds, a title so tacky that Canoe did not even want to read it. Canoe had made two serious films before, and he wondered why he was even being offered such raunchy comedies about getting laid, about ripping farts... But he wanted to help out his friends, so he gave them more of a closer look. Now, he was disappointed by the scripts for Give Enough and and Bachelor Party. So Canoe decided he was going to give Revenge of the Nerds a try. And it took about three pages before he decided that this was the one. In the setup for the characters in the script, he readily saw himself within it. He identified with these characters. Like the main characters who felt alienated on the first day of school, Canoe also suffered from imposter syndrome when he first started going to Columbia University. He thought nobody was going to accept him. He was persistently isolating himself in his dorm room because he felt ostracized by everybody else. He enjoyed the rest of the script, too, because of its humanity and ultimately a positive message. However, other Fox execs were not sure about Canoe being the right choice to direct Revenge of the Nerds. They screened his two prior movies. They thought neither were very good, and they definitely were not comedies. Wizan had to go to bat for him, stating that Canoe really did know comedy. He was a funny guy, and he would deliver exactly what they wanted, no arguments. Once he got Canoe to agree that he'd make a movie every bit as stupid and as shameful as Fox wanted, he got the job. In the script, best friends Louis Skolnick and Gilbert Lowe, they head over to Adams College only to find that the jocks there belong to a fraternity called Alpha Beta. And they've taken over the dorms, the dorms that they had just moved into after their own frat house burns down. To end their accommodations at the school gym, these nerds now determine to join a fraternity, but they're shunned away because they're nerds. No frat is going to take them. So they decide they're going to start a fraternity on their own. After that, they continue to be the target for many pranks initiated by the alphas. The nerds start getting pissed, and they vow revenge. That's the basic setup. You kind of know where it's going to go after that. Now, Jeff Canu, he sought two young actors for the lead roles. Quintessential nerd actor Eddie Deason was his top choice. Deason played Eugene in Greece. He seemed kind of a natural nerd, maybe a perfect Louis Skolnick. But the studio did not think Deason could open a movie. They pushed for a bigger name, Robert Carradine. Carradine, he bombed his audition. He felt Revenge of the Nerds was not something he really wanted to do. He was a, He saw himself as nothing akin to a nerd. He loved music. He was a musician. He, he rode motorcycles around Triumphs. These were cool bikes. He didn't consider himself at all nerdy. He was more likely to beat up a nerd, he thought, than to be one. Nevertheless, he did get a call back after that audition, bad as it was. He did need work. Carradine determined he would try this time, the second time. He got a nerd haircut, nerd glasses, nerd wardrobe. Canoe, when Carradine came in, he did rebuff him a bit. He gave him a hard time. He said he was full of it for saying this was a part that he really wanted to take because he knew he didn't want it. But Carradine, when he was offered, still took the job. However, Carradine was plagued with a lot of self-doubt. He thought that they were going to fire him, that he would obviously be seen as being miscast. So he decided... He was going to arrive in Tucson two weeks early in his nerd wardrobe. That's the only wardrobe he brought with him, and he was going to get in the zone of being a nerd. But he was so self-conscious about it, about being mocked, about walking around as a nerd. It took several days of Carradine to leave the dorm room he was staying in. And when he did, he was surprised nobody actually really reacted to him. They just thought he was some sort of engineering student. The script mentioned a lot of nerd things. Lewis was supposed to have a honking laugh on the eve of him delivering that laugh during the shoot. Carradine had no idea what a honking laugh would sound like. Somebody gave him the suggestion of viewing the audition tape that was given by James Cromwell, who was playing his father in the film, because he performed a similar laugh during that audition. Cromwell, by the way, years later realized he had subconsciously based that laugh on his wife Anne's guffaw. And Carradine decided to adopt it for Lewis. Of course, he and his dad have the same laugh. Despite his early qualms, the studio loved Carradine's performance in the film. Once he saw The Dailies, his confidence also returned that he could pull off this part. And he did it for not only this film, but like three sequels afterward. Anthony Edwards, he took the role. He had strong reservations as well because he feared that the film would become a cartoon. But Edwards actually... Deeply respects the film today. Edwards and Carradine, by the way, they decided to see how well in character that they were as nerds. They decided to rush a fraternity. Most of the fraternities already knew they were coming in the area. But the one where they didn't, the the fraternity president looked at them and said, no way they're going to be getting into this fraternity. And that's when they knew they were legit nerds. Julia Montgomery, she didn't know why she was hired to play the cheerleader and the uh, sorority girl, given she's never been a cheerleader and she had no knowledge at all of sororities. She was given no guidance on her character or how she was supposed to behave. Interestingly, Montgomery, the sorority girl, liked hanging out with the actors who played the nerds. Off the set, she became, by the way, intimately close with one of the main actors who plays Booger in this film, Curtis Armstrong. Michelle Mayrink, she plays a nerdy girl named Judy of the nerd girl sorority Omega Moo. She actually preferred hanging out with the actors who played the jocks. Ironically, the jock actors initially saw the nerds as full of self-centered jerks, mostly Robert Carradine. In fact, Donald Gibbs, who plays Ogre in this film, probably the most boisterous of the jocks, he says he wished he would have kicked Carradine's butt when he had the chance. Mayrink, who was known to be wild enough, I guess, to flash the other actors from time to time, she beat out the likes of Sarah Jessica Parker, Joan Cusack, Jamie Gertz, Julia Louis Dreyfus for the role. A lot of big names later Mayrink beat out. Now, Curtis Armstrong, which I mentioned earlier, he was a theatrically trained actor. He thought he was going to be a stage actor, maybe go to Broadway. He auditioned to play Gilbert. He didn't know it was already taken by Edwards at that time. But the rest of the roles didn't have a lot to work with for the audition purposes. So when Armstrong's agent told him that the studio called and they wanted him for a different part than Gilbert, Armstrong told his friend Bronson Pinchot, who had also auditioned but was declined, that he would accept any role but the disgusting and misogynistic character named Booger. Nevertheless... He accepted instantly, pretty much, when Booger was the one that was offered. He needed the money. Armstrong tried to change the name from Booger to his scripted name of Dudley Dawson. But the writers said that the character needs to stay as Booger. It was based on a real person, an old high school buddy that they had named Booger Ballantini. Booger Ballantini had gotten his nickname by wiping boogers onto a cardboard box underneath the seat of his pickup truck. Armstrong tried to make his character less obnoxious. He tried to get the belching contest sequence of the film cut, but there was no budging on that either. So, But when he did do that scene, he couldn't actually do a really good belch, so they planned to dub a belch in later by somebody who could really deliver a juicy burp. Armstrong says that they still couldn't find an adequate booger caliber belch, a real knockout. So they poured through animal sounds, a lot of sound loops in the archives, and they discovered a field recording of two camels mating. So they blended the sound of a human belch with the final act, the male camel experiencing an orgasm to make the perfect booger belch. Now, like Armstrong, Timothy Busfield read for Gilbert when he came in to audition, but he didn't get that part, obviously. A few weeks later, they brought him in for a smaller role, this violin-playing nerd resembling Henry Kissinger named Arnold Lipschultz. However, there was a person who handled the props, the prop master, who also had the last name of Lipschultz. His name was Art Lipschultz they decided to change the character's name to Poindexter. Now, to prepare for the audition, Busfield went into a thrift store. He found a thick pair of glasses. He found an ill-fitting suit, and he parted his hair a lot differently. The casting director, Susan Arnold, she couldn't even recognize him when he came in again. His audition consisted of dancing to Michael Jackson while reciting the lines that were meant for Lamar, the black gay character, and Canoe offered him the role on the spot, something that was not done for any of the other actors. Actor Larry B. Scott who did play Lamar. He is not gay, but he took the role because there was a dearth of non-hoodlum black character roles for black actors in the 1980s. Flashdance, by the way, was a hot movie, so he attended the audition dressed like Jennifer Beals and did a very effeminate gay caricature, the one that you see in the film. Reportedly, he did have his share of female companionship during the shoot there, as did many of them, but he in particular went all out. He, He said he was overcompensating on showing machismo, because he didn't want others to think he actually was gay. Another unfortunate thing that people were bullied for back in the early 1980s. Now for the other roles, Ted McGinley, he was discovered because Canoe, he saw his face on the front of this looking good calendar, depicting the men of USC. It was sold in the gift store of the University of Arizona, where the film was going to be shot in Tucson. And when Canoe found out that, uh, This guy that was on the cover was actually an actor on Happy Days. He called him in. He wanted him to come audition to play Stan Gable, the main bad guy. McGinley got the role, but he was kind of embarrassed by being in the film. In fact, it was really the name. He was embarrassed to tell others the name of the movie that he was in. But he later came to deeply embrace his participation in the movie. Matt Salinger, who was one of the sidekicks of Stan Gable in this film, in the Alpha Betas, he was cast... For very simple reason, his father was author J.D. Salinger, and he wrote one of Canoe's favorite books, The Catcher in the Rye, so he wanted to get him in and hear some anecdotes about his father. Donald Gibb, who plays the malicious ogre, he was a stuntman before he took the role here. He won the role because they couldn't find any real actors that they felt were adequate enough or obnoxious enough for the part. He looked a little too old to them, though, to be in college. He was about 30 years old, so they asked him to shave his beard to make him look younger, which he Gladly did do David Wall Who plays Dean Ulick Kind of the sidekick To Coach Harris Played by John Goodman He developed a backstory In his mind That he and Coach Harris Were secretly lovers So they kind of Are like a bickering couple Throughout this film now, Canoe felt that the script needed polishing, so he brought in a new team of writers named Steve Zacharias and Jeff Buhay. And Zacharias and Buhai, they had grown up together. They lived in Chicago. They eventually joined fraternities in college, and they fought for civil rights, something that was kind of tied into the themes of this film. They saw nerds as representing kind of another group of people who are persecuted for being different. Many of the characters were drawn from people that they knew in high school and college, the football coach, the dean. Several of the student characters were patterned after the colorful people that they grew up with. For instance, one friend of Zachariah's decided to start his own fraternity while attending the University of Wisconsin because he couldn't get into any other fraternities, kind of like they do in this film. He invited other nerds to join him. The cast arrived two weeks early to flesh out the characterizations while Buhai and Zacharias made script changes. And over the course of the production, the ensemble grew to enjoy their participation in the film. As I mentioned, Revenge of the Nerds was shot in and around the University of Arizona in Tucson. The university did give quick approval for shooting there because it was a major studio effort. So they thought this was going to be legit a month prior to the shoot, though the university suddenly declined to allow their campus for use because somebody in the sorority council read this very raunchy script and thought this was a depiction of campus life that was deemed very unflattering, especially its portrayals of fraternities and sororities and the kind of debauchery that goes on there. The decision to bar the shoot from the University of Arizona drew a lot of media attention, so the powers that be They started to get a little bit of cold feet about their decision. They feared that stopping Revenge of the Nerds from proceeding actually might jeopardize future Hollywood productions from using the town as a location. The Tucson Film Commission estimated that $4 million would go to the local economy from Revenge of the Nerds, so that was hard to turn down, and the university itself was going to receive $10,000 in fees. A day after the decision to bar the shoot, director Jeff Canoe, the producers... Two of the main stars, they flew in to discuss the matter with university officials as well as Greek representatives. They convened at a hotel near the airport to continue further discussions without the media spotlight. The film team waived the qualms that the university had about the raunch factor. They stated that a lot of this was likely going to be removed. They probably were going to try to make it PG rated, so a lot of it is going to be edited out. The university then reversed its decision after the filmmakers agreed to some stipulations that they would not use their school's name, they would not mention the town of Tucson, they would stick to a 15-day schedule on campus, they would be open to feedback from the fraternal organizations, and they would not show any questionable behavior taking place physically on the campus, and they would not disrupt any other campus activities going on. So the university reversed its decision to let the shoot take place on campus. But they weren't out of the woods yet because after two weeks of shooting, 20th Century Fox, the studio execs did not like what they were seeing in the dailies. They told Canoe that he'd need to improve what they were seeing or they were going to put in a new director or maybe scrap the film altogether. So Canoe immediately invited the main talent out to dinner, cast and crew. He told them that they could not rely on this unfunny script. They needed to do more with that script. He told the actors they should ad-lib some more personality touches into their characters, that they should also work on improvising better dialogue than what they were given. For instance, a lot of scenes started to change, a lot of improvised scenes that weren't in the script. Booger and Takashi playing cards, that was all unscripted and ad-libbed by the actors a recurring joke that happens throughout the movie. After the films released, the University of Arizona's faculty who dealt with Greek affairs did not care for the unflattering portrayal, despite all of the promises that they were given. One university representative claimed that the film is offensive to pretty much every group, maybe except Jews, although that's not really true. Many of the last names might denote Jewish ancestry in the film. In fact, so many of those, Gilbert's last name was changed from Pinsky to Lowe because they thought too many of them looked and sounded Jewish. The university was also not pleased that they kept full frontal nudity in the film because they had objected to it when they saw some of the footage early on. They wanted to have it removed. The producers assured them that this was only for the European release. Obviously, it wasn't. It was released into American theaters as such. Speaking of full nudity, Donald Gibbs, ogre, says Carradine, uh, would strip naked after the day's wrap because he said the nerd look wasn't who he really was, so he would walk around without clothes. To the commissary and eat among them, which they thought was kind of a D bag move. Now, some scenes at the end were reshot, they were excised for time, there was a prolonged torture sequence. That occurred when the nerds visit Alpha Beta that didn't garner enough laughs to justify their inclusion. We do see the aftermath because the the two main nerds come back tarred and feathered. There's another sequence where the Alphas smash up the Tri-Lamb frat and then toss Gilbert off the porch. They decided to cut that because it was a little too heavy in tone. They also removed a trip to Las Vegas for the Tri-Lamb convention held in a casino, and it featured a small role for actor Michael Lerner playing Gilbert's prejudiced uncle. A Fox executive thought they were actually making fun of him, so they decided to remove it for being a bit too mean-spirited. There was one thing that was in the script that was removed uh, along the way. There was a revelation that Stan, Ted McGinley's character, was a closeted nerd. We would find out at the end his frat brothers would walk in on him while he's actually studying, and then he whips off his nerd glasses and hides them. They cut that out, but they did revise that story angle in the third of the nerds' films. There was also a scene of Booger lip-syncing to an Elvis rendition of America the Beautiful that was in the script, but it never got filmed, although he still was shown dressed as Elvis for the nerd song and dance at the end for reasons that they never quite explain now, Revenge of the Nerds did meet with other mishaps during the production. Drug dealing was witnessed by one of the cops near the shoot that resulted in a bust. Several members of the cast and crew were taken away in handcuffs. And The cover story was that the first assistant director was needing to chemically stay awake for the night shoots, and he purchased some drugs, I guess, to stay awake, but he was observed by a cop on the set. It wasn't quite true. There was a lot of debauchery going on, a lot of getting high, a lot of partying. As much as they could among the cast and some of the crew, pot and cocaine were in abundance as well as college women all around. Debauchery was really the norm on the shoot of Revenge of the Nerds when they were at the university, particularly from John Goodman, as well as a visiting Treat Williams, who happened to be doing a movie nearby called Flashpoint. He would come over to do some partying with them. Donald Gibbs said he did pretty well with the women. He lived off of Ted McGinley's leftovers. The onset doctor had to administer B12 shots to those who needed a boost to get them through the next day's shoot because they didn't really sleep very well after partying all night. Once it was all in the can, Fox executives felt that there was a couple of positive test screenings in Westwood and Las Vegas. They thought they, those must be a fluke, so they decided to have another preview in Dallas where it did not do very well. It was very lackluster, so they became hesitant They had little confidence in the commercial viability of Revenge of the Nerds, so they decided to cut their losses and put the marketing money from nerds more into Johnny Dangerously, which was going to be released later in 1984. Obviously, if you know your movies, Revenge of the Nerds did a lot better than Johnny Dangerously profit-wise. Now, one reason they were hesitant was that they thought that the word nerds in particular was a turnoff to mainstream audiences, that that was likely to cut into the film's broader appeal. And without bankable stars or a traditionally attractive cast, although I guess you could say the jocks and some of the sorority women were attractive, they did release it into a smaller number of theaters. The marketing campaign had a poster title that was resembling National Lampoon's Vacation to try to garner some of that same audience who were looking for a silly R-rated comedy. Orson Welles was brought in to do the voiceover for the trailer. However, people did actually go to see Revenge of the Nerds. Its reputation did grow enough for many to take notice. And after a month of success in smaller venues, they decided to release it wider. And it ultimately raked in over $40 million in the United States, a surprise smash hit off of an $8 million budget. Its reputation really grew over time, enough to have three sequels, one theatrically in 1987 and then a couple of made-for-TV movies in the 90s. Canoe realizes today as he looks back on Revenge of the Nerds that some of the humor maybe has not dated as well, especially jokes that are dealing specifically with race or somebody's sexuality. Those definitely do rely on some stereotypes. Some viewers may be troubled. There's a rape by deception sequence. One of the nerds pretends to be uh, one of the jocks and uh, seduces somebody's girlfriend without her knowing it while in disguise. And that's considered very troubling by a lot of people who watch it through today's lens. Uh, Also, the persistent objectification of women. I mean, you can go back to a lot of films, a lot of comedies in the early 1980s and see a lot of this that does not go on as much today. And also, I guess to a more broad extent, the term nerd is not really derogatory today. A lot of nerd culture is really the dominant culture today. The pop culture today is driven by nerd culture, especially in colleges. So this definitely is not a film that is meant to evoke the feelings of today. It is very much a film rooted in the viewpoints of people who made films, I guess, in the 1980s. Canu said, though, it's still a fun movie if you take it in the context of its time. Although he is still a bit chagrined that this ultimately is considered his career peak artistically. Revenge of the Nerds, it may be a bit juvenile and maybe a little simplistic in its approach, but I do think it's far funnier than many others that have tried the same formula. It's become a kind of a quintessential misfit comeuppance film. It delivers this message that those social pariahs, The ones that usually get picked on or beat up or excluded from all the cool activities are actually a cool bunch of people themselves once you get to know them, and maybe you'll want to become one of them as well. Like the nerds themselves, the film might look maybe dorky and unhip from the outside if you just look at by its poster or its cover, but it is, like the nerds, resourceful and clever and quite likable if you give it a chance. Good casting, excellent performances, for the type of movie that this is anyway. Those all help immensely. And while it's not a movie that I would say many would call a genuinely great film by any means, it is a cult classic that I think is very much worth a look for fans of films of the 1980s. Dumb comedies that are deceptively smart. If you're feeling nerdy yourself, you'll definitely find a lot to like within Revenge of the Nerds. So long as you can keep it within the context of attitudes of the 1980s that no longer really persist by and large today. So for that, I'm going to give Revenge of the Nerds three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that it is a recommendable movie for people who like this kind of film. If you're a fan of the Animal House, the kind of college frat party atmosphere, this is one of the better ones. There were quite a few that came out in the aftermath of Animal House. Certainly a lot of National Lampoon-style humor, so if you like those films... I think you're going to get a lot out of Revenge of the Nerds as well. It is a funny movie and a lot of funny character touches. I do think that the comedy holds up today, even as some character touches and sequences in this film that may make some people wince as far as what was considered acceptable behavior to display in a mainstream motion picture. So, so take that for what it's worth. You've been warned. Three stars out of four is what I ultimately give Revenge <laughs> to of the Nerds. Out. Now, usually during this portion of my review, I talk about all the things that came afterward, but I'm going to save all of that because there was another film from this series that was released in the 1980s. So I will be discussing Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise from 1987 on the next episode. So watch that one if you haven't seen that already. Most people consider it a step down, but there are a few that champion it as being as funny or maybe more funny than the first film. I personally don't see that, but it's been a long, long time since I've seen this film. So 1987's Revenge of the Nerds 2 on the next episode. And with that, I will springboard to all of the things that came afterward for this franchise. And there's a lot to talk about. So I hope you'll listen to that episode next week when it drops. Now, if you have your own thoughts on Revenge of the Nerds that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram are all adequate to get in touch with me. I look forward to talking to you sometime soon. And until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies.